Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Monday, October 12th. Stocks are up, oil prices are down, and we're focused on new revelations about Jeffrey Epstein's financial fortune. It's been more than a year since Jeffrey Epstein died in a New York City jail cell, but the investigation into how he made his money is continuing to heat up. The latest is a New York Times report released this morning showing that private equity titan Leon Black might have paid Epstein upwards of $75 million over the years, which is way more than was previously disclosed. Why it matters is twofold. First, because Virgin Island officials are likely to subpoena Black as they continue to try to figure out how Epstein made all his money and if that money should be disgorged for the benefit of Epstein's alleged child sex trafficking victims. Second, because Leon Black is a very, very powerful figure on Wall Street. He's the founder and CEO of Apollo Global Management, a publicly traded investment firm with over $300 billion in assets under management. And you might know some of the things they own, like restaurant chains Qdoba and Chuck E. Cheese. Now, Black isn't necessarily one of private equity's godfathers, but he's definitely one of its current kings, and his relationship with Epstein reflects, most generously, bad judgment. Black said in a statement to the Times and to Axios that Epstein provided him with personal trust and estate planning advice, plus family office philanthropy and investment services through 2018. But Black declined to elaborate further, and that's why there's still a giant question here. Remember, Jeffrey Epstein wasn't a certified accountant. He wasn't a licensed broker-dealer for investment purposes. He was just a guy. And someone like Leon Black could have had any accountant, any investment manager in the world. So why he not only picked Epstein, but continued to use him after his earlier conviction is very unclear. So we wanted to go deeper with Matthew Goldstein, the New York Times business reporter who helped author this morning's bombshell report. We're joined now by Matthew Goldstein. So Matthew, how long have you and your colleagues at the Times been looking into the Leon Black, Jeffrey Epstein connections and what kind of sparked that investigation in the first place? Well, we've been looking for probably way too long, to be honest. Specifically, it's almost actually a year ago. My colleague, Steve Eder, and I, we had a local lawyer in the Virgin Islands go to court to get some of the financial filings that Epstein had had in the Virgin Islands for Southern Trust and financial trust. And when they came back, we were actually stunned to see that Southern Trust, which is the company Epstein formed in the later years after he was convicted, had all this money coming in, like $200 million. So ever since then, we've been trying to figure out where did the money come from? So it's basically been a year-long hunt. And we had heard Black's name come up very early on, but documenting this has been very difficult. And that only started to come together in the last two or three months. Leon Black, at the outset, after Epstein's original arrest, didn't say very much about his relationships with Epstein. He talked about how there was this question of Epstein being on a family foundation board and when he had actually come off. Then later, he kind of downplayed it in an investor call with Apollo Global shareholders. From your perspective, was Black truthful with Apollo shareholders in the way he described the relationship? You know, I don't like to get into saying truthful or not truthful because it's sort of difficult. What I would say is he described it as being a limited relationship. What we found, I don't think anyone would argue is limited. I guess if you have $9 billion and you pay 50 to $75 million in fees, maybe you think that's limited. 
it's not just even the dollars which are significant. It's that they were socializing regularly. I mean, Leon was a regular frequent presence over at Epstein's house in New York for breakfast and lunch meetings for years. What is Jeffrey Epstein providing that is unique? That continues to be an interesting question. You have a line in the story, and I think I'm paraphrasing, which suggests that there's not evidence that Epstein was particularly adept at money management. Is there evidence that Epstein was adept at tax slash estate advice, which is what Leon Black claims he was getting in exchange for his money? Not that we've seen. I mean, I think what Epstein was very adept at was selling Jeffrey Epstein. Let's leave aside the whole allegations of sex and pedophilia. He had a way of worming his way into the lives of rich and powerful people. And we've been told that Epstein was a frequent emailer, would just like pound people with emails all day. I think it's partly what he did with Les Wexner, that he made him feel like he was the only person who could take care of them. And I think sort of played up to the, look, we know rich people have a lot of insecurities too. And I think he played on a lot of those insecurities. I think Epstein was very good at knowing what approach to take with each person he went after. If Jeffrey Epstein happened to simply be good at selling himself to Les Wexner and to Leon Black, there shouldn't be anything necessarily illegal about that. You could argue it's immoral. You could argue that he duped some people or maybe didn't. What are they actually trying to find out what happened? He is focusing on the sex. So her basic claim is, look, you can argue too, because there's no doubt the government of the Virgin Islands enabled Jeffrey Epstein for two decades. And in many ways, they look the other way at a lot of things that were going on. But the basis of her claim is, and it's a civil RICO forfeiture claim, is that he misled government officials for years to get these lucrative tax breaks and get all these perks that they gave him and was using it to run his sex trafficking ring out of his little St. James Island. And going after the money, they claim that basically the tax breaks, which are basically allowed to pay no taxes for 20 years the estate should have to cover that. So money would be coming back to the estate. So one way to figure out is also who was paying him money and was the money done for legitimate purposes to begin with. You're a kind of general business reporter. You have covered private equity. You have covered public companies. Are you surprised that it does not appear that shareholders in Apollo Global Management or limited partners in its private equity fund, who are these institutions or individuals who put their money into these blind pools, none of them seem to care very much about this, at least judging by the stock price and Apollo's ability to continue raising larger and larger funds? It does surprise me, but not surprise me. I can tell you from my own experience. I mean, you look at going all the way back with Madoff. People thought Madoff was front running for years and they didn't care, you know, and they didn't care as long as he was making money. Look at Steve Cohn and SAC Capital. The allegations of insider trading were around SAC for years, and people didn't care basically until the indictment came out and until Steve wasn't making as much money as he used to make that. I think the sad thing is on Wall Street, if you make money and can justify the returns, investors will look the other way. What happens next from a legal perspective, from an investigation perspective financially? What's the next, if not shoot a drop, at least next step that gets taken? I think at least for us, we're not satisfied. We still want to figure out what he was paying services for and also find out who else was paying money. In, in terms of big players. Can I ask on that piece, though? Isn't it pretty likely that there's exactly two people in the world who know that answer? One of them is dead and one of them does not seem to want to tell anyone? I have to tell you so why this has taken so long. There are not a lot of people in this universe that know what's going on. And Epstein's circle was very small and very tight. And they also have an interest enough to talk. Epstein's death, again, I am not of the conspiracy theories, but Epstein's death made it much easier for a lot of people just not to talk. I think it depends what happens with the Ghislaine Maxwell 
lawsuit, the indictment where that goes, that may unearth some things. And the Virgin Islands Attorney General is very active here, and she's going to keep sending out subpoenas and trying to push people to talk. So I think we will see more in the next six months. Matthew Goldstein, New York Times, definitely read their piece, which is out this morning. Thank you so much for joining. Welcome back. What we're watching this week is the U.S. Justice Department, which many expect will charge Google with violating antitrust laws, likely more related to its search business than to its advertising business. Why it matters is this could be the largest U.S. antitrust case in nearly 20 years, going back to when the DOJ sued Microsoft. And while Microsoft ultimately won that case, it also became so distracted with the lawsuit that it created the space for Google, well, to become Google. So we wanted to ask Axios tech reporter Ashley Gold for the basics of what the DOJ is likely to accuse Google of doing and how Google would respond. The DOJ is expected to accuse Google of abusing its dominance in the search market, the online search market, to unfairly bring down its rivals and, as a result of that, make it so consumers have fewer choices online when they go to look up a doctor, book a flight, find a restaurant, things like that. Google is expected to respond to that by saying everything they do, they do in service of the customer. American antitrust law does not protect competitors, it only protects consumers, and at the end of the day, these services are free. I think what they're going to say is they got in the business to connect customers to the web, and their rivals say, you became the whole web, you no longer just connect customers to the rest of the web. Today we're also watching the Boston Red Sox. Well, not literally, because their wretched season is mercifully over, but because it's in talks to be taken public through a merger with one of those SPACs that have become all the rage on Wall Street. I wrote deal details in today's Axios Pro Rata newsletter, but the upshot is that this transaction would create new transparency into the financials of Major League Baseball, which both the league and its franchises have traditionally tried to keep under wraps. Not just because of the Red Sox going public, but because lots of other teams are likely to try to strike similar deals. And finally, we are getting ready to watch Apple's Tuesday unveil of its new iPhone, which would be its first to enable 5G networking. Two things to know. First, 5G is basically about faster speeds, but so far, most of the country isn't networked for the highest speed 5G. Two, the hope is that by Apple introducing this iPhone, it'll encourage carriers to invest more in 5G, getting us to those higher speeds. Or as Axios's Ina Fried puts it, there's always a chicken and egg issue when it comes to a new G. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national gumbo day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios recap.